Welcome to this episode of Shapes of Grief, everybody listening. And we have a, a different kind of an episode for you today. I actually have two guests with me, um, two colleagues from the world of grief support and grief training and education, Melissa Lunardini and Emma Payne from the Grief Coach Texting Service. So you're both very, very welcome. Where in the States are you, Melissa? I currently reside in San Diego, California. So jealous. And where are you, Emma? Uh, Grief Coach is based in Seattle. In Seattle. Okay. Yeah. So I'm delighted that you're both here. For me, it's really nice to meet colleagues from across the water. Um, just like grief can be so lonely for most people, working in grief support can be quite lonely as well. You know, there's a few of us sort of trailblazing, trying to, you know, get the word out there of the needs of bereaved people. So I think it's really lovely when we come together in ways like this to support each other's work. I'm all for that. And there's 7 billion people in the world and all of us experience loss and there can't be enough people working in this space. Um, That's exactly what I say all the time when people say, oh, these new things are cropping up and now there's this. I think there's so much need yeah, <laughs> and nowhere near enough people trying to meet the need. So. That's it. There's so much need and there's also so many different perspectives. And, you know, what's true for me and my experience and with my education and background could be totally different for another person or a different audience. So I think, you know, I know, Melissa, you've signed up to the Shapes of Grief training program. And I don't know if you listened to the interview with George Bonanno, mm -hmm. but he makes the point, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, to really understand grief we need to understand the whole spectrum of possible responses, not just a small segment of people who are uh, really struggling, for example. We need to understand that there is a whole spectrum of possible responses. Um, so Emma, can I start with you? Because I know this was originally your baby and you've pulled together an amazing set of uh, grief specialists and people working in the area from across the United States, it seems. Um, how did this start and why? Did you have a loss yourself? Yes, I think uh, <clears throat> as with most people that work in bereavement, it began with a personal story. Um, about 10 years ago, I had a, a dear friend who died and before he died, he had asked me to speak at his um, funeral, which I had of course agreed to do. But once he was gone, it felt very, very daunting because he was the best friend and also second cousin of my husband who had died a decade prior by suicide. So essentially what I had agreed to do was travel across the country, stand in front of hundreds of people, many of whom I hadn't heard from when my husband died, many of whom I hadn't heard from. And that was, you know, essentially my whole 20s <laughs> gone into a, a, a vacuum. Um, but I really think of the funeral as a gift from my friend uh, because I essentially spent 72 hours from the service through to the pub nights, you know, hearing people saying, I'm so sorry I didn't reach out, I didn't know what to say, I didn't know anybody who died before, then I felt guilty because too much time had passed, how are you, you know, and on my way home I just thought, on my flight home, and at this point I'd spent 20 something years building web and mobile applications for other things. Uh, suicide prevention, um, voter registration. Um, on my way back, I just thought this is absolutely ridiculous. I spent 10 years not hearing from people and 100 people spent 10 years feeling genuinely, genuinely badly about it. Here was this opportunity for connection, which instead pulled people apart and all the learning that could have happened didn't. Um, so on my plane ride home, I sketched out the whole thing, really. <laughs> I assumed that when I landed at SeaTac, I would see, I would get on Wi-Fi and see that it existed already. Um, and instead I got onto Wi-Fi and saw that there was nothing out there for grief. There's an app for everything. There's text, there's all these services. We use text for everything. So why not send texts to people after someone's died, not just to the person who's grieving, but to their friends and family who want to help and just don't know how. That's an so ingenious that was, idea. That was the I idea back in 2016. <laughs> yeah, what you've just described there is the experience of so many people. Um, and I love your attitude is let's do something about this. 
rather than let's just sit back and get angry at everybody who didn't show up. Mm -hmm. um, and instead it's to understand that people genuinely don't know what to say or do, or for whatever reason, they just don't have the capacity to face somebody else's loss, but it's rarely out of malice. Yes, I yeah. feel, I mean, every time we send a text to a griever, which is thousands a day, I feel certainly a, a full heart. And I'm very, very glad when a griever receives something from us that is helpful and they let us know how helpful it is. But when the supporters, when the husband says, oh, thank you so much, I didn't know tomorrow was her dad's birthday, I feel an extra boost, I guess, you know, because he wants to help and doesn't know how, loves his wife, just tell me, give me the tips, okay, go. <laughs> Practical and empathetic, you know. And I think what's really important to differentiate here is intention versus impact. And rarely do people intend to do harm or to not be supportive mm -hmm. or to say the wrong thing. That's never anybody's intention when right. someone is so vulnerable and newly bereaved. However, the impact of some badly put together words or silence can be really painful on somebody who's already super vulnerable. I think that's really well put. And we just remind our supporters, or we text the support, every subscriber can add in two supporters. Every uh, week we text suggestions to them and mostly we do say some version of what you just <laughs> said. You know, use their name, be there to listen. You don't need to fix their pain or take it away. Your presence is enough, just help them stay present. What we don't want people to do is stay away. Can I chime in and just say that from like a research perspective, what we see is a gap in all the literature where every researcher is saying, here is exactly where we need to focus effort. And it's often around providing that education and awareness initiatives to family members and friends, that informal social support wing for grievers, because it's often the gap, right? And Emma just intuitively knew that that needed to be a part of Grief Coach was to offer the mechanisms and the coaching and the mentoring to supporters so that way they can do the heavy lifting that grievers rely heavily on them to do. And so it ends up really um, being a nice synergistic uh, option that grief coaches has that's in alignment with what researchers are advocating for. Yeah, which is thanks to Melissa, because <laughs> I did not have a background in bereavement and thanatology, right? I had a background in mobile and tech and a decade's worth of um, volunteer experience in suicide prevention, like no, no, no thanatology. And so when I first went live and started delivering texts, I started trying to build a network and just learn as much as I could about the field. And Melissa was quite literally one of the first people to respond to my cold, cold email and just be like, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. This needs to exist. What can I do? <laughs> Fantastic. And you know, you didn't have canontology, but you had the lived experience. You'd been yeah. in a pit of loss. I had that. Um, bereaved by suicide, which yeah. is grief with the volume turned up for many people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did for sure. Yeah, I had my own experience, but I think that what Melissa is speaking to is important because what we've actually built is not, it's almost the opposite of one person's personal experience. It is the wisdom of experts. It's vetted, it uses dual process model, you know, we're using really deep, thoughtful bereavement expertise, but sending it out in a new way. Yeah. And it is really important because it's not to be bereaved, you know, or to experience significant loss gives us a personal experience, but everybody will respond so differently depending on who we are, our attachment style, our history of loss, our emotional and psychological flexibility. You know, there's a whole myriad of possible responses to any loss. And we do need people like Melissa, um, you know, who understand that full spectrum so that we don't get, you know, a lot of people I think in the grief space or the breathing space are coming at it, you know, with tunnel vision from their own experience. Yeah. This happened to me, therefore this is true. And uh -huh. it may not be true for many people actually. Um, you know, it's, it's good to have that experience, but we do need to 
go to somebody who has the research, the education, um, you know, and like George Banana says, you know, who can look at the whole possible spectrum of responses so that the information is correct, evidence-based and applicable and relevant to a wide universal audience. Um, because when we have a personal experience and apply it universally, it just jars, you know, it can jar for many people. You're exactly right. And I think it's one of the things that is, I mean, this sounds because it's our baby, but one of the things that is the most incredible is around this piece around accessibility and like the wisdom of many because we exist for a full year and longer if people choose to renew, which they often do, but we're talking about small bits of wisdom from lots of different experts delivered every single week for the whole year. It's different than one person in a support group with one opinion or, you know, you get all this wisdom from different people and you pick the bits that make sense. This resonates for me this one not so much but that one really did and you people keep them we have lots of people tell us that they don't delete any of the text they keep them and those are the most personal and useful thing they've ever received because it's got their name in it the name of the person who's died suggestions based on their um, experience right if if it's a suicide loss then they'll have messages around a suicide loss if it's loss of a parent then messages around loss of a parent if it's a loss from years ago then here's some suggestions from Hope Edelman who writes about the long arc of grief. It's kind of beautiful that we can pull things in from all over because it's text and it's just so easy to get. You don't even need a smartphone. You don't need bandwidth. You don't need video. You don't have to download anything. Yeah. Yeah. Just, we just text you. Yeah. That's great. Melissa, can I jump over to you? You're a grief specialist, a thanatologist, um, and you're the, the bereavement expert behind Grief Coach. What's your backstory? How did you come into this area? Sure, uh, I actually was a teacher as my first career and through volunteer work, I um, volunteered at a local center for grieving children, teens and their families. And I just fell in love with the raw and vulnerableness of children being able to share their grief. And so that really started my path in thanatology and at that point I basically stayed in the realm of hospice bereavement and then offering support to families um, for about 17 years and um, my personal loss though I've, I have people who have died from like disability suicide homicide old age, natural causes, cancer. Um, some that are really important like mother figures, some that were best friends, cousins. Um, and so I feel like I've, you know, grandparents have had the experience of many different personal losses and been very fortunate enough to work with just thousands of people over the 17 years who've just experienced every form of loss or relationship you can think of. Um, and so it's been just this big learning opportunity, this ongoing bird's eye view of the full spectrum of what grief can look like, right? Um, and the variety of what makes grief so multidimensional to people, right? It's their, it's not, it's their culture, it's their background, it's their previous loss history, it's their, you know, current stressors, it's their mental health and physical health conditions, it's all of these factors. Um, that make grief so unique to each person. And I just love the opportunity to um, kind of look through that with each person. And I love that Grief Coach has an opportunity to um, create very customizable ways that we can try to touch on the uniqueness of grief for each person, um, should they allow us to. So. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. Grief is primarily a learning experience. We need to learn how to be again when profound loss rocks our inner world. We might ask ourselves, what's happening to me? Who am I now? How do I navigate through this grieving process? Is there an easier way through grief? How can I understand this better? 
If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesagrief.com. The more grief literacy, the more compassionate our society, the better the outcomes for those who grieve. Now, back to the podcast. And I think, you know, just listening to you there talking about children and um, I know reading through the literature you sent over earlier and from signing up to Grief, grief Coach myself, you can um, personalise it if you're LGBTQ+. Plus. You can personalise it if you're a person of colour. You can personalise it if you've been bereaved by suicide. This is so important. Like, th- there's so much work for us all to do still in the world because... A, grief in itself is so avoided just in the general discourse in society. I think particularly just in Western capitalistic society, we are, we've been groomed to be part of this society that pretends we'll never die. Get a bigger house, acquire another car, you know, make sure you've all, you look this way, make sure you've all these clothes, make sure you have items and um, belongings as if you're going to need that to live longer or something. Um, and, and so we don't think about that life is so short. You know, someone said to me recently, you've got tattoos, but like, you know, you've got them forever. It's like, yeah, but forever is nothing. <laughs> forever is nothing. And I think we've all fallen victim to the society that we live in, that we have pushed death and grief you know, certainly to the outskirts of what's important to us so that when it touches us and it does and it will, if it hasn't yet, we're so utterly shocked by it. You know, we're so utterly shocked by nature and the cycle right. of life. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and people literally describe, and I'm sure both of you have heard this, you know, it's like the ground shatters from under you. It's you know, who am I now? What does anything mean anymore? It's like everything is up for renegotiation. You know, your friendships, your how you live your life, your body, what you think about life and your life and who you are. So that's just generally grief when it hits, but then there's all these extra layers of, what if I'm gay, what does it mean to grieve? What if I'm a person of color, what does it mean to grieve? You know, what if someone has died unexpectedly or suddenly or traumatically like there's there's so many nuances would you speak about the importance of understanding them a little Melissa and I also just say too it's like you yes it's what does it mean to grieve but then what does it what does access look like for me too because when we're talking about these like really uh historically disenfranchised populations being able to access proper bereavement care um it's part of what makes their experience very marginalized, not being able to sit with a counselor who is another person of color who has the deep bereavement experience that you are hoping that they would, or not being able to access another LGBT um, peer support group when that's where you would most likely feel um, most at home, not only in who you are, but being able to talk about your same-sex couple that is no longer here and is deeply a part of the identity that you've come to live in. Um, And so I think that, you know, yes, it's important to understand how they grieve, but just equally important is recognizing just that in any of our current systems, we're just not providing proper access to these populations. And, uh, you know, text-based becomes that equalizer in a lot of ways. we're able to then put these experts that do have the experience, but maybe these people would never be able to get on a scheduled call with them or have access to them. Grief Coach becomes this lifeline extension uh, to these people that are like them, talking about experiences that they are deeply familiar with. And there's this cultural rapport and awareness that takes place that, that most people aren't able to afford these minority-based populations, no matter how gentle or how um, intentional we are in holding that therapeutic space. Sometimes people just need to be with 
their people um, and speaking language that they understand. Um, and Grief Coach is able to offer a little of that just by being able to pull from experts from all different types of backgrounds, different types of loss experience with, you know, different disenfranchised communities. And so um, the value is very clear to a griever to be able to access people that are like-minded um, and have the experience and um, language, I guess, that they yeah. need. It's like really well put. We launched a series about a year ago for caregivers, people who had been a caregiver before the death. And the response to those messages, so now you can tell us, yes, I was a caregiver for my husband before he died, and then you get messages that see you in that experience, the person who spent years looking after their person before the death. And I think it's that, it's, it's Melissa's so right about the lifeline and the accessibility piece. We are just so accessible, multiple languages, hundreds of sources, global, just to your phone, really affordable, the accessibility piece is huge. But that diversity of voices to your question, Liz, is about being seen mm -hmm. early. You sign up, we see you, we see that this is a traumatic and sudden death, and that's going to add these things. Or we see that it's COVID, and probably everyone's asking if they were vaccinated. Or we see that it was a stillbirth, and people aren't even talking about your baby. We see you. There are certain themes that you know we do see coming again and again. You know, certainly with perinatal loss, how the mother always seems to blame herself. Um, and just to even know that, to know that that's a common experience. Um, I talked to Dr. Pauline Boss about this when I interviewed her for the training program on ambiguous loss. And she talked about how mothers, you know, from 9-11, even though it was a terror attack and nobody could have planned for that. So many mothers of adult children who were killed in 9-11 found ways to, to make it their fault. And it's almost like the blame is easier than sitting with the chaos of loss or the chaos of terrorism or sudden death. But I love that the app addresses this, like these certain themes that can arise for your specific losses. Um, because it is so important, isn't it? Like if, if I lose a sibling and someone says, oh, go talk to John down the road, whose wife died. I don't really want to. I want to speak with somebody else who's also lost a sibling. Um, to experience the, dis to, to maybe discuss the disenfranchisement of that, you know, where everyone says, how are your parents? Um, mm -hmm. Or just to discuss common commonality. So mm -hmm. how did you do that? How did you, I mean, I know it's in 16 languages, you know, like I said, if you're a teen, if you're a caregiver, if you're a person of color, if you're LGBTQ, you can find your niche. How did you customize this so well? It is pretty awesome now, I have to say, because so, for the user, it's so simple. It takes five minutes. You go to the website, you tell us a little bit about your loss, you press submit, you get your first text, and off you go. If you want to stop and start, just stop and start. Press type up, type stop, type back start. So it's very, very, very simple and accessible to the user. But I will say that now, when I look at our back end, because it's just evolved so much, I am very very proud of it we have uh, an amazing um, CTO Adrian who's been with me from the beginning and built this system that is um, a piece of art really and each of the texts takes hours to write by the time we source from experts vet change does it work for pronouns will it work in these languages did we blah, blah, blah. so the system is very rich and very deep um, in answer to your question you know we started small and have evolved over time. We now have, I think we started probably with about 25 different relationships. Now we're up to 56. So you can have brother or sister. You can also have twin brother, twin sister. You can have colleague, patient, friend, teacher, manager, grandmother, stepmom. You know, there's a very um, wide range of ways that in the back end it's 
tagging based on a, a whole bunch of things in order to give people the best that we possibly can. <clears throat> There's some AI at work to help us prioritize messages based on reactions and responses. We see what messages people respond to the most. We see um, what time frame they're at in two different ways. How long since the death? Also, how long since they signed up? Somebody could sign up naively when I first sort of mapped it out, I thought that people would sign up when someone dies. Well, no, of course not. <laughs> people sign up a year later, two later, years, three, ten. People sign up when they need support, which I have now learned from Melissa and lots of the people that we work with is, is very typical. So we're taking time frame into account. We're taking relationship, lots of causes of death. We actually just um, uh, launched a new series for sudden unexplained um, infant and child death, as well as medical termination of pregnancies. We've got a, a huge amount of wisdom that's stored, stored back there and tagged and prioritized based on, yeah, some AI and some uh, criteria from what the person puts in. It's pretty cool. And can I add that, like, from a bereavement lens, the way that we kind of wash the text through, if you will, is we're looking at is the is the message, you know, underpinned by some framework, some theory that we can draw back to, whether that be, you know, continuing bonds or meaning making or dual process model tasks of mourning, anything that we can connect it to as a foundation. And then we're looking at is the messaging that we're delivering here appropriate for the first three months of grief, for the first six to 12 months of grief, for the first year or three years plus, for example? Um, because right, there's there's the, the survival piece of the acute grief that takes place. And so your messaging kind of has to thematically run concurrently with that. And then maybe a year or two after death, there's this kind of integration that happens, right? You start to integrate grief into your, your daily living and the way that you operate. And so messages are more catered towards that integration piece. How do you maintain that relationship with that person while you continue to invest in life and living now that they're presently not here? Um, and so our, our from a bereavement perspective, we're really looking at like, what are the major kind of themes and practical things that people who are just to their eyeballs and grief need to hear or see in order to make their day or their grief experience just a little bit more manageable um, in whatever way that is, whether that's through normalizing their grief experience, offering a practical tool or strategy or a technique that they can implement when grief feels overwhelming, or providing a resource um, or an article for them to take time to read, or maybe it's a little short video clip that just really talks to the essence of their loss and what they could possibly be going through. So um, it's really the bereavement piece also just takes a significant amount of time in addition to kind of crafting the text and tagging it. We have to really be mindful of language, right? Because uh, we have to avoid certain euphemisms and we have to avoid, um, analogies and metaphors that may not translate well. We have to be mindful of language that is generally acceptable language, but when you put it through the lens of a suicide or a homicide death, would it then still be applicable language to use or will we have to kind of alter some of the wording to make sure that it's sensitive to that? Um, and so it really just takes a critical eye. And we have a quite, a, quite a great team um, working with us that really just with a fine tooth comb and we're not perfect we do mess up but our <laughs> our, our our users are really awesome in providing feedback too you know sometimes they'll catch things and be like hey i'm wondering you know you're you're saying the word was but really it's is like as in present right and so we're like that's a good point let's go ahead and make that correction because you're right um there's no point in talking to somebody in past tense when it's a birthday, for example, right? Today is a person, not today was their person's birthday, yeah. right? And so just little things over the, you know, it's like we, our team does really great, what we would call kind of um, social listening. And, you know, we're hearing what people are needing, what they're asking for, and we're able to take that information and drop it into a text so that they and people after them get the support that they needed from also 
them, right? So there's this pure element that's also interwoven into this aspect too. So it's it's really good to hear that you think so much, you've thought it through so much because I think for any of us providing grief support or holding any sort of a platform for people who grieve or those who support them, like it's such a responsibility and it has to be rooted in ethics, you know, and in good ethical practice. And, you know, I hear from people who come to my clinic because I, you know, I see, I support people who are bereaved as well as teaching they need hope. You know, it's like when a bomb has gone off in your psyche, you need someone not to say, yeah, this is absolutely brutal and it's not going to get any better. You, you don't need to hear that. <laughs> you know, we can acknowledge the depth of grief and how profoundly painful it is. But I do feel that we have a duty to say, you can survive this. And, you, you know, you there are ways to navigate this so that you can come together again maybe as a different person or definitely as a different person but to offer people hope I hear that a lot I need to know I, I hear people say I need to find someone who's not broken five years down the line so that I can see that mm -hmm. you know um what do you yeah. think of that Emma well I just wanted to thank you for making that point about the ethics and the responsibility of what we're doing there are a lot of, um, especially since the pandemic, all kinds of tech people are entering the end of life space. And that is just not who we are. We're not funded by some other entity. We're just a group of people who really, really, really care about grieving people, getting the support that they need and deserve. We're a 10 person team um, and we work very, very hard to make sure that exactly what you just said is true of every text and of every response. Um, Melissa, as our head of bereavement, also manages our subscriber support team. They themselves are mental health professionals. So we're watching, we're escalating if we need to. We're being very, very mindful of the responsibility that we, that we have. And the other thing is about that is, you know, people that are, you know, my friends think, oh my goodness, is this, this must be depressing. Isn't this really difficult work? And I tell them, this is the most joyful work I have done in my whole life. And I've been lucky to have lots of work I enjoyed. And it's because when people are supported, when they are seen and treated with respect and given some hope and a message resonates for them that makes them think, okay, someone heard me today. Oh, this is a thing that seems similar to what I'm going through they feel hope. And so our subscriber support channel is like, I'm getting choked up even talking about, I mean, it is right, Melissa, like it's, it's almost unfathomable because we're talking about every minute, every two minutes, people coming back with hearts. Thank you so much. This would have been Johnny's birthday. Yes, this is difficult. Could you do that? I mean, the gratitude, it, it's, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. you just thought of that at exactly the right time. Oh, I was just having that. It's, it's incredible to me, the level of gratitude that people have when they receive a text message, <laughs> but it's because the text message gives them some hope, lets them feel seen. Yeah, and I would say that we, you know, with our internal research team, we've been able to kind of like um, thematize some of the re responses that we see on inbounds and you know we we definitely see themes emerge such as like helpfulness emotionally supportive um, timeliness, enjoy right? timeliness so feasibility and and then also action right I will do this I've not thought of this I'm going to try this I'm doing this right now and so it's pretty incredible that a small text message can not only make somebody feel emotionally validated in their grief experience, but then also cause them to take action, right? It's like in, in, in the clinical realm, you know, you, you kind of give your, give it your all to try and get that combination to uh, occur for you in, in real time, right? Like, well, I feel seen. And because of this experience, I'm actually going to go and make these changes to my life right away, you know, and, you know, we're able to see the same powerful, um, 
kind of cathartic response occur just through text connection. Like I just pulled up one that just came in that says, thank you so much for these messages of support. They help and strengthen me every time I read one. And it's just, it's so, it's so powerful that people just feel that three little sentences can make a huge difference in the um, intensity that we know grief to be, right? It's, um, you know, we get people just texting us back all the time, just with questions or concerns or just really needing to normalize this one little piece of their grief that they haven't been able to get enough support around. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that, Melissa. Do people can text back and get a response? So it is designed to be one way, meaning that people fully sign up, hopefully fully recognizing, we've tried to make this explicitly clear that this is a, is a one-way form of support. So our your job is to kind of just sit back and receive support, which is unlike any other parts in our life, right? We're actively told that you have to tell people what you need and use your words and ask for what you need, right? And so we've 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 designed Grief Coach to actually take that responsibility away even, and you just sit back and receive support from us. Um, However, people were, are humans and want to engage when they feel seen and heard. And so oftentimes we do get responses uh, back, but we do re, like set expectations and let people know when they, when they are kind of constantly communicating back to us, we will remind them that it's a one way, but they do know that bereavement specialists are seeing all of their responses. And so we let them know, you know, if you do have kind of these criteria, we will respond back. If you just need to know that your texts are being seen, I, we want you to know that we see you. And we, you know, just remind them every single time with, an, with a, a text that kind of goes back. As soon as they reply, they'll get an automatic text that just reminds them that it's one way, but that reassures them that they're being seen. Yeah, people are so sweet. Like they say, I know this is one way, but I just want to say that today was my dad's birthday. For anybody listening in, disclose, like disclose kind of the things that we do respond to typically. We typically respond to anybody who has a question about um, a need for a resource or um, possibly they need help with their profile or maybe they are curious about how they add on more people. Um, we also respond to anything that looks distressing. So if somebody's just like, I'm really struggling today, we don't let that inbound just lay there. Um, we, we acknowledge that immediately and follow up with personal communication, all of our communication. There's nothing um, AI driven about our communication. It's all done through a human sitting behind their computer, typing back to another live person. So that way they can feel that humanness come through in the texts. I've looked at, you know, a few of your sample texts that you sent through to me earlier, and what really strikes me is the need for psychoeducation, and I think mm -hmm. you mentioned that somewhere in your documents as well, and, you know, as well as receiving compassion and support and accompaniment, people also need to understand why I'm feeling this way and what's happening to me, and, you know, I, I, I love to assume everybody wants to learn, um, you know, and just understanding how grief affects our body, how grief affects our mind um, can be so empowering. You know, I've, I've uh, one listener of the Shapes of Grief podcast. She's a lovely woman in Australia, an American woman in Australia <laughs> who found the podcast and listened and loved it and then signed up to the grief training program and is now studying counseling in Australia with the hope of implementing everything she's learned from the Shapes of Grief training program. Um, but it's, it's, it's so rewarding. But for her, she had a significant loss. She needed to learn what is this? What's going on for me? And for her, like, you know, some of the, the stuff on grief on the internet of it's awful, it's terrible. And, you know, whatever yeah. narrative that is, didn't work. She was like, I need to, I need to find people who've survived this. I need to, I don't want to throw away my life. I don't want to let this define me forever. Um, who am I now? How do I rebuild? And she found that in the program. And it sounds like people will also find that in the grief text. And they I think it's simple things, you know, when they, they read their experience and they go, 
I've felt exactly that. If someone has written this text, that means at least one other person has mm -hmm. felt that. Therefore, it's not just me. I'm not alone in this. We That's often hear from people that say that they, you know, they go to the web. They want to learn. I was exactly like this myself. I was like just freaking out and I didn't know where to even begin when I was originally grieving. And people say they go to the web and then, of course, you just find a lot of teardrop graphics and pages and pages and you can't even read when you're grieving and it's just overwhelming and it doesn't feel as if it's um, applicable. We were so last week, so the woman who um, heads up our content strategy and works with Melissa to actually craft the text with our different experts, we were publishing some new texts into the system, which means that they've been through hours of work. And really, by the time they come to my desk, they really are a thing of beauty. I'm giving them a final pass. And this there's a message about letting go and uh, the idea that you don't have to. You don't have to let go of your person. This person is going to always be part of your life. Um, it's right and it took my breath away and I just thought to myself I'm like oh my goodness I wish anyone ever at any moment in the first years of my acute grief where I was believing myself to be a murderer some days <laughs> racked with guilt other days so angry other days if someone had just said this to me so anyway I was in a meeting with Shelby who'd written the text to the next day and I was like oh Shelby the thing is so beautiful I just wish that someone had said this to me and that everyone could do it. And she just laughed at me. She's like, Emma, that's what we're doing. Just set it to priority two and everyone will get it. I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> <And that's> how, <laughs> like there's so um, many things that can be said succinctly that are deeply rooted in all the uh, research and learning that, that um, we're talking about here, but that also just hit. It's so true. And it's just simple things can change people's perspective and totally reframe how they're carrying a loss. I remember saying to a bereaved mom coming up to the first Christmas, let's call her child Jack. And I said to her, how are you going to parent him this Christmas? You know, and her child had died and she was like, what? And then she's <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I can still parent him. Like, it's like, well, don't you want to? And of course, and you know, how is Jack going to come and be part of Christmas and how can she continue to love him and shower him with her love, although he's not alive anymore, you know, but he's alive somewhere in her and with her. Um, and it's, yeah, it's little things like that, giving people different options, you know, but I think, yeah, I think just the fact that it's all rooted in science and it's evidence-based and that there's good strong clin clinicians behind it is really important and that it's no one person's perspective mm -hmm. you know if you like you know if shelby has an idea it has to go through lots of different filters before it reaches somebody oh that many really filters yeah. yeah i'm i'm really really fixed on this idea that it has to be the wisdom of many it's not about transferring data. We're really good at transferring data. I can just like stand next to you with my phone and send you all kinds of stuff, right? Um, it's not knowledge. It's not knowledge transfer either. It's not a webinar where you sign up and you listen to one person telling you their experience or telling you about their perspective. We're good at data transfer. We're good at knowledge transfer. But to actually build wisdom over time, we have to make our own insights, and they has to come from a myriad of places. And this is where I really feel excited about what we're doing because people hear one thing then the next thing then another thing a few weeks later and you piece it together and that's where like the wisdom and strength comes on we're yeah. the absolute opposite of here's one person's opinion on grief everything is very um comes from lots of lots of beautiful voices and i will say that um even though a lot of our content contributors are um, and experts are from a Western um, philosophical framework um, or orientation, we have made a, a strong effort to bring in more Eastern philosophical orientations into coping and the ritualizing and ceremonial pieces of grief. So in terms of memorialization, in terms of coping strategies, we've really worked hard to blend kind of both of those orientations. So somebody who may be more inclined to um, 
you know, find coping through gardening and soil and touching the earth will, you know, or, or howling or chanting or um, rooting themselves in music, for example, or singing may also, you know, they'll get text messages in addition to your traditional westernized modes of coping where you might say like journaling and, and um, exercising and, you know, all of the things that we might see traditionally like thrown out. We're, we're, we're trying to make a very um, concerted effort to blend all of those orientations because we do are we are global and want people to see coping strategies that actually resonate with them culturally. We give people, we have a question that asks people um, when they sign up if there are holidays that are important to them. So if they choose Christmas, in the example with your uh, baby Jack, then they will get messages in the lead up to Christmas with thoughts about Christmas and how they're going to honor their person over the holiday season. But if they choose Ramadan or Eid, they will get messages for those things, um, which I also really like. Just trying to, make, well, as with the core idea, just trying to um, make it work for as many people as we possibly can. We also acknowledge just two other um, populations that, that we didn't really address here, but I'd love for anybody listening in to be aware of it, which is we have text around when a relationship is very complex and complicated. So, you know, we make the assumption, a lot of times clinically people make the assumption that um, if you're grieving, that must mean that there was love that has been at the forefront of your grief, and that may not necessarily be the um, anchor to their grief, right? It could just be this dysfunctional relationship that was never able to repair or reconcile, right? And so we have text about that, but then also we have texts that really honor the experience of immigrant and refugee populations um, and talking about kind of the other layers of loss that happen when you are, when migration and immigration is a part of your, your story in addition to a death. Yeah. That's grieving really great to away know. From, grieving if you're away from home, you know. Yeah, you can't that's really great to know. Home. I have two young women staying here with me from the Ukraine They've been here since March and, you know, it's we're going about living our lives as normal and then every now and again, I might catch a look on their face and just say what's going on at home today, you know, um, and it's such a disenfranchised grief as well in a way, you know, they're here, they've got jobs locally in my hometown, they don't want to be here, they want to be back with their boyfriends in the Ukraine, they want to go back to college in September, one of them studying law, one of them studying nutrition, all of that has been flung up in the air. They haven't seen their parents, you know, and then there's the threat of death, of war, you know, their town, their towns are destroyed. But you know, here they're just the pizza waitress and nobody really knows what's going on for them, you know, behind the facade, so. So much grief is hidden, so much grief is disenfranchised, and that can be extra painful, you know. Um, listen, I wish you the very best. It sounds like an absolutely amazing service, and um, that it is so, so needed. And it's been a joy just to hear from you both and hear the service that you're offering. Really encourage people to sign up. And um, how much is the program? I think it's quite affordable, isn't it? Yep. We're working our very best, hardest to try and keep the price down. It's getting a bit difficult because different countries cost more and different languages and so on. But um, for now, we are still $99 US for a full year of support. That's two texts a year for the grieving person, um, as well as one, uh, two texts a year, two texts a week for a full year for the grieving person and also a text a week for up to two of their supporters, the friends and family who want to help. So $99 US. Um, for a year, you just sign up at grief.coach. Great, that sounds amazing. Well, I wish you the very best of luck with it. And are you going to keep developing it further and adding to it or what's the plan? Oh yeah, we have a lot coming, um, anticipatory grief, of course. So being able to support people after a diagnosis, um, a terminal diagnosis, so that we get asked for all the time. People sign up and they say, oh, my mom's you know, dying, but she hasn't died yet. And we need to be able to extend 
tech support to her. So we're working on anticipatory grief. We're working on, um, yeah, all kinds. I'm delighted to hear that because I know 20 people who need that right now. Your minister earlier on, you talked about like the arc of grief and, you know, when we have that acute grief and then it slowly starts to become integrated and, you know, it, it does shift and change for most people. Um, and the volume hopefully does go down as we start to integrate our loss. Um, it's always there in some shape or form. But, you know, we, we can learn to carry it. We can learn to adapt to it. We can accommodate it. We are so much more flexible than we realize. Mm -hmm. We don't have choice but to be. If we can get tools to help us to become more flexible so that we can not be flattened by our grief, um, all the better. But yeah, with the anticipatory grief, it's so hard because people are often in that just total shock and the trauma where you're living in a, 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 an emotional war zone. People really need something just given to them. I think even more so because it's, it's hidden. And I've had hospice um, CEOs say to me um, over the last years that they believe that emotional support for caregivers anticipatory grief support, emotional support for people who are caregiving is the biggest gap in healthcare, yeah. period. Yeah. Here we rely on them. We rely on those unpaid caregivers, the wives and the daughters and so yeah. on, to provide billions of dollars worth of value in our palliative care system. Yeah. But no one's talking to them about what their feelings. I know, I know. I mean, I, it's, yeah. it's, so that's what we're going to do. We're gonna to talk to yeah. those caregivers about their feelings from the diagnosis, and then we'll be with them through the death and beyond, that's what we're doing now. So that's going to be a, a, a huge leap forward for Grief Coach and you know, probably will make what we're doing now seem small. <laughs> It'll be so much needed, you know, because yeah, when you're in that trauma response and you, you're rendered like a four-year-old, you know, that mm -hmm. vulnerability and that inability to properly think out things you know, you've never had to tread that path before. It can seem utterly impossible. Someone just reached out to me recently, actually. And, you know, it's not a client. It's, you know, just somebody who knows what I do. It sent me a message on Facebook. And, you know, I just went sort of looking for something to share with her. It's almost impossible. And I kind of put out a call on Twitter and someone recommended this book, you know, about um, it's called Follow the Child planning and having the best end of life care for your child you know so I've got her the book I don't even know if she'll be able to read it I've lined up a couple of podcast guests um, from people who have had a child who lived with cancer and died from cancer in the hope that something they will say will also help her but you know she's drowning in this whole new world and it would be amazing to be able to throw a lifeline in the form of a text which is readable when it's just a paragraph. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, this book I'm sure is gold, but whether or not she'll be able to download it is a whole other thing. I Preparing the Child is by Kathy Nesbaum is a really great anticipatory grief book that I typically, and it's smaller, it's like just only about like maybe 50 pages and it's, it's gold. Okay, oh, I'll get hold of that, thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. Very best of luck with it. And just finish with um, your URL where people can sign up for Grief, grief Coach. It's grief.coach. You can sign up there. It takes about five minutes. Grief.coach. That's, That's it. it. Okay, excellent. Thanks um, so much for having us, Liz. Thanks for uh, letting us come together. That was fun, Melissa. It's our first time doing yes. that. I really enjoyed it. Well, Liz, I'll be in uh, doing some grief coach research in Ireland for my dissertation. I'm also in a PhD program. I noticed that you were as well. Um, and so I'll be uh, trying to disseminate grief coach in Ireland and study it and see how effective and useful it is as a tool for the Irish culture and population. So we're thanks so much, Liz. It's a small world. Well, look, lovely to have you both on and best of luck. Um, much needed service. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you.